720 WGN. Hey there, it's Amy Guth here on the Wintrust Business Lunch. Thanks for being with us today. That is a fine song. We're going to let that play a second and just rock out to that. Well, I hope that you are enjoying this beautiful, sunshiny day. We may have a little bit of weather rolling through the area a little bit later tonight, but of course, we'll keep checking in upstairs with news and keep you updated on the latest there. Well, we have a very big show today. Lots of stuff we're going to be talking about, including we're going to talk about the idea of co-living, because that is a thing that is real, and that is a thing that exists right here in Chicago, and we're going to talk with uh, with one uh, one person who's bringing that into Chicago more and more, and is as spirit headed a project there. And we're also going to be talking with uh, author Michelle Wooker, who I was just talking with a bit, uh, John Williams with about, and she wrote a book called The Gray Rhino, and it's about looking at risks in business and life, and particularly business, but uh, and mitigating them and taking steps to, to deal with them ahead of time rather than just letting them hit. We're talking housing bubbles, uh, major business crises, things like that. Well, there was a, an editorial written about her book in a Chinese, a major Chinese news paper and the stock market responded in China. So if you saw that big dip on Monday in uh, in the Chinese stock market, that is why there was a lot of response to this editorial. So that's very interesting. We're going to be talking with her. She's a local author. She's going to be joining us in studio. And then we're going to be talking a little bit later about uh, a Chicago-based company that, you know, the details are not quite adding up with them uh, quite in the way we thought, and, and there's, there's a lot of uncertainty about them, so we're going to be uh, kind of holding, holding them to the fire a little bit and talking with someone from Chicago Tribune who has been working on this story, so all of that good stuff coming up here, but before we get to that, we're joined by Marshall Allen, a reporter at ProPublica, who recently wrote about the really confusing and rather flawed system of drug expiration dates, which requires that many drugs are thrown out even when the FDA knows that they're perfectly okay for a bit longer than perhaps that expiration date suggests. So joining us now, Marshall Allen, reporter at ProPublica. Welcome to the program, Marshall. Thanks for being with us today. Good day, Amy. Thanks for having me on today. Thanks. I appreciate you taking time out of your Saturday. So so talk us through this story about, uh, it's a really interesting story. Everyone can find it at ProPublica.org. It is called The Myth of Drug Expiration Dates. Talk us through a bit, if you would. Well, what was most interesting to me is that we almost need to stop using the term expiration dates for our drugs because no one's really checking to see if they're truly expired. What the expiration date on a drug actually means is that it's good up to that date, so they guarantee it's safe and effective up to that date. But afterward, a lot of these drugs are still safe and effective, but they're still being thrown away because no one really checks to see how long they actually last. And so is it a matter of simply, okay, we can guarantee its effectiveness up until this date, after that you're on your own, or is there a a toxicity risk? Well, there doesn't seem to be a toxicity risk. I talked to different poison control experts, and they said they had never heard of anyone being harmed by, like, an expired drug that turns toxic. But they may not be as potent. And every drug is different. So you don't want to just say that what's true for one drug is true for everything. But what's really interesting is that the FDA has a program in place right now where they regularly test expired drugs. And then these are only the drugs, though. This only applies to the drugs that are in the federal government's stockpile of drugs. So the federal government has warehouses full of drugs all over the country, and these are on hand just in case of some type of public health emergency. And it's very expensive for them to replace these drugs when they expire. 
So instead of replacing them, what they do is they have the FDA test them, and if the drugs are still good, then they regularly extend those expiration dates. And some of these drugs that are having their expiration dates extended in the federal stockpiles are the same drugs that they're using in hospitals and in pharmacies all over the country. And so ProPublica has been taking kind of a deeper look, and I know we've talked with a couple of your colleagues on this program, about why the U.S. healthcare system is the most expensive in the world. And and broadly, as you note in the piece that you wrote, um, a lot of that has to do with waste, and this is yet another example of, of that. And so as you're seeing, um, as you're seeing these expiration dates being perhaps changed a bit after some testing, what kind of numbers are we looking at to potentially, as a potential uh, cost saving in the healthcare system? Well, it's hard to say for sure because no one is actually measuring it, but it is billions of dollars being wasted. Um, if you look at hospital pharmacies alone, that's kind of one little sector where we can quantify it a little bit. I talked to one hospital, they, uh, an average size hospital, where they said they throw away about $200,000 a year worth of expired drugs. If you multiply that over the 4,000 hospitals around the country, you're at about $800 million right there of wasted drugs being thrown away because of expiration dates. Now, that doesn't mean that all of those could be saved, so it's hard to say exactly how much, um, and that's also just a small sliver of the total drugs being thrown away. But what experts said um, that talked to me is that they, they said, well, someone needs to start checking. You know, the FDA could um, possibly extend their shelf life extension program, which is the program um, where they test drugs. They could extend it even to just hospital pharmacies. So even in hospitals, they don't have to throw away these drugs, which are very expensive and which are also often in short supply. Right. And and as you also note in the piece, the incentive starts getting a little bit murky for uh, for the pharmaceutical manufacturers to to spend the money to do this and to do, to help fund this research and do this. Because, of well, course, yeah, they want to keep selling new drugs. Right. That's absolutely right. I mean, when you when you look at um, uh, what they're required to do, they're not required to keep checking their drugs to see how long they last. And I called some of the largest pharmaceutical manufacturers in the world, and they said they're not checking to see how long their drugs actually last. Now, if they were required to do that, then they could even update their expiration dates. For instance, um, on occasion, a drug company will extend expiration dates for things like shortage drugs. So when it's in their best interest or when they need to extend the expiration dates, they can do it. Pfizer just did that back in June for a few different drugs. But the problem is no one's requiring them to do it on a regular basis, and so it rarely happens. So there's an economic piece of this. There's the healthcare piece, but then there's also perhaps a regulatory piece. Definitely, and I think the bottom line um, with this whole series I'm doing on wasted healthcare spending is that you and I and everyone in your audience, we are all paying for these this waste. And so whether it's coming out of our pocket, coming out of our high insurance premiums, or coming out of the taxpayer dollars that we kind of feed into the state and federal coffers, this is all costing us our money. And I think that's the ownership that the public needs to take and realize that this isn't just anyone's money being wasted. It's our money, and it's part of the reason our health care costs are so high. Indeed. Marshall Allen, reporter at ProPublica, thanks so much for joining us today. If you follow me on Twitter, I have tweeted this story so you can find it and read it and share it and all of those good things. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you, Amy. All right. We are going to take a little break. When we come back, we are talking about the concept of co-living right here in Chicago and what the heck that means. Back in just a bit on 720 WGN. 
720 WGN. Hey there, it's Amy Guth here on the Wintrust Business Lunch. Thanks for being with us today and sharing part of your Saturday with me. Always very grateful to you for that. Lots of people out on Michigan Avenue today enjoying that warm weather. We got some sunshine now, but we may have a little bit of weather moving through the area a little bit later. And of course, we'll keep checking in upstairs in the newsroom to keep you updated on the latest with that. But still lots to do here on the Wintrust Business Lunch. We are joined now in studio by our very special guest, David Herrera, who's a building developer at Golden Mean. And he is here to talk with us about the concept of co-living, because that is coming to the Ukrainian village area of here in Chicago. And the idea is that, just like with a co-working space, sharing will allow renters more amenities than they could afford alone. And it's a, it's a model that tends to be uh, uh, appealing to younger renters and and people kind of just starting out on their own. So, David, welcome to the program. Thanks, Amy. Welcome. Um, oh, good morning. Thanks. It's still morning somewhere on the West Coast. Anyway, so um, glad you're with us. And so when we say, like, co-working, I think we've all kind of gotten our heads around that. Like, okay, I'm going to have this desk at this office that I share with a bunch of strangers. That's cool. But the idea of co-living, suddenly, that, that seems a little bit different because it's like um, I'm going to live with a bunch of strangers. It seems like uh, like an MTV show waiting to happen. I think it's it's a little odd maybe for the Midwesterners, um, but people have been rooming for, for ages now. Um, New York, San Fran, I think it's a little bit more prevalent, even in Chicago. Um, but, uh, yeah, essentially it's rooming. I mean, people have been living in cities since, since Rome, right, and urban infills in, and people are looking for affordable ways of, of you know, how to go yeah. about their life. So it's really just kind of skipping the process of going to find a roommate. Essentially, yes. Uh, if you're an out-of-towner, you don't um, know a soul in the city. Um, you can apply online. and. Um, some people don't want to live by themselves. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when I was reading about this idea of, of uh, co-living, and I, I totally get that it's out of economic necessity because it's so hard to afford housing. And with the you know economic crisis that just happened, a lot of people were entering the job market and striking out on their own at a time when it was very difficult to afford housing. I, I totally get that. But immediately I was struck by the idea of I think I'm too much of an introvert. I, you know, I need my privacy and my space. I don't know if I could really do that. So, what about wh- where does privacy figure into that when you're living in a house with a bunch of strangers? Well, you have your own private room. Um, you're going to share a lot of the amenities in the building, common area space, maybe your kitchen, living room. Um, I'm 34, but I'm always on the go. I really don't cook. So, yeah, if I, I've, I've lived with roommates my entire life. Um, I've lived by myself. And I actually didn't like it. And felt isolated coming home to an empty house. Okay. Versus a roommate where you could kind of go grab dinner after work or something. Mm-hmm. So. Okay. And so, um, you know, where does where does stuff like safety fit in and personality clashes and all that as you're looking at uh, just kind of throwing a bunch of strangers into one big building together? Well, Common does have an application process, and so they kind of do the, they do the background checks. Um, as far as safety goes, I mean, we've got 24-hour surveillance on site. I mean, there there's 12 cameras in the building. In the common areas. Um, exactly. The okay. lobbies, um, front, back entries, um, rooftop deck. Uh, it's also Wi-Fi access, so the key locks are very high-end. Um, you can kind of just fob into the building and fob in um, to the apartments. Uh, so that's kind of an upgrade. So fob is a verb now. 
Okay. We're going to fob in. Okay. That's fair enough. I thought a fob was a noun, but that's fine. Everything becomes a verb eventually. Um, and so really this is about being able to afford nicer amenities and having nicer things uh, or nicer, nicer living quarters than perhaps you could afford on your own or just with like one or two roommates. Correct. Yes. I mean, rents are kind of uh, creeping up. Uh, it's tough to afford in, in decent, well-located neighborhoods such as Ukrainian Village. Um, and, you know, welcome to the sharing economy, right? We're the generation that is car sharing. We, we do the bike share. Uh, we're sharing apartments now. Um, um, so, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a global trend. And, um, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And so you have uh, uh, what I've read about the project that you're working on in the Ukrainian village. It sounds like there it's mostly for singles, but there are some, like, accommodations for couples, too. Correct. Um, common does allow, um, you know, you, you can have a couple, there's a couple suite. So it's probably, it's a larger um, bedroom that has a walk-in closet, uh, has its own private back balcony terrace, and uh, has double vanity uh, sink in the, in the rest, in the bathroom. So for his and hers. Yeah, that's key. So. <laughs> the his and her stuff is really key. And that's a large, it's probably the size of a studio. Yeah. Room. Okay. Okay. Big. And and yet, you know, so then you have like the shared uh, dining area and the shared kitchen and things like that that are higher end and nicer. Correct. And yeah. then there's balcony space that's shared in the rooftop yeah. and the amenity space. Yeah. So where can people go to find out more about this particular building and project going in uh, in Ukrainian Village and what's the timeline on it? Yeah. So um, they're already doing tours. It's move-in ready. That's one of the perks. All the furniture is there. It's fully furnished. Um, you can find out more at www.common.com. Also, you can find some info on my website at www.goldenmeangroup.com. And um, it really provides affordability. Um, studios in the area, one of the newer buildings, they're starting at 1700 per month, and the one bedrooms at 2200 per month. So, um, so what it, kind of rents would this be to move into this building? Yeah, so rents start at 1325. Okay, but includes all utilities and and furniture. Now, if you're going to rent furniture, I looked online, and you're, you know, minimum 200 on the low end. Yeah, for small you get studio. cruddy stuff. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. so this is pretty well furnished. Um, so it does provide value, and if you're not a towner and you don't kind of you want to yeah. be in a safe area and you want everything taken care of, the bills and you have to sign up for Wi-Fi or sign up for ComEd or. So this is a, you show up, you write one check, you pay, you just pay the rent, everything's included. It's turnkey. Yes, yeah. you just come with your luggage, and and move in. Where was that in 2001 when I moved to Chicago? That would have been pretty handy to just kind of get started in that way. Indeed. Well, David Herrera, thank you so much for being with us again. Common.com or goldenmeangroup.com if you would like to know more about co-living and co-living spaces. Thanks so much for being with us today. Great. Thank you. WGN. Hey, it's Amy Guth here on the Wintrust Business Lunch. Thanks for being with us today and sharing part of your Saturday with us. Always grateful to you for that. Well, lots to do still on the show. We are joined now in studio by a very special guest. Michelle Wooker is here. She is author of The Gray Rhino. And the full name of that, The Gray Rhino, How to Recognize and Act on the Obvious Dangers We Ignore. I can recommend this book. I have read it and it is fascinating and it, is, it will change the way you think about things and it will certainly make you, even if you're not, like, it, it's about business but it will make you think about even like, uh, I'm not going to worry about that until it happens. Mm-mm, mm-mm. You're not going to do that anymore. You're going to be a lot more proactive after you read this book. I can vouch for that. Michelle, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So your book uh, came out April of last year, um, and it has been translated into 
five or so languages. Five, Korean, Hungarian, coming out in Norway in the fall, and Chinese traditional and Chinese simplified characters. So international. Very international. It is all around the land, and lots of people are reading it. And so when it came out, uh, when it was the Chinese edition was released, it prompted a response, and there was an editorial written about it that has that had a quite an impact. Tell us about that, if you would. It's it's crazy. Uh, it's uh, it pretty much rocked the Chinese stock market on Monday. Uh, I was traveling, and and so I didn't really pay attention until sure. I got back to my desk, and there were all these interview requests in my email. So the People's Daily, which is the official paper of the Chinese Communist Party, had written a front-page official editorial warning about the need to deal with financial risk and speculation. And anyone in finance knows the term black swan, which mm-hmm. is the thing that's highly improbable that you can't imagine. But they said we shouldn't just watch out for black swans, but also gray rhinos. The term that I came up with for obvious, highly probable events that still don't get the attention that they need and probably are not going to be resolved and that we're much less likely to deal with than we think. So the Chinese government used this as a way to communicate a major policy shift. And immediately the the two small cap stock indexes in China crashed between 4 and 5% in a single day because they took it as a single as a signal that the government was was going to crack down on speculators and try to take financial risk out of the system. Well, not many people say that they have crashed the Chinese stock market. So that's a very unique claim to fame that you have there. I'm still getting my head around I'm it. I'm sure. So that was, that's my next question. What what happened next and what did you do? You 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 look at email, you have all these all these requests for interviews and what has happened since Monday? Well, uh, Monday itself, the news stories started coming out, CNN Money, uh, Bloomberg, Market Watch, Zero Hedge, and then the, the stories started getting translated all, the wor- all over the world. There's come out in, um, in Turkish, in Vietnamese, in Spanish, in Portuguese. It's been republished in, in Qatar, in Malaysia, all over the world. People are saying, what's a gray rhino and why did it cause Chinese stocks to crash? And it's it's just incredible seeing how this term has really caught on and how it's making people think differently about risks that for the last 10 years, people have been so worried about the highly improbable things that you can't imagine, mm-hmm. which is really sort of a cop-out. Sure. Because if something happens, you can say, oh, Black Swan, I never saw it coming. Right. Nobody saw it coming. And I'm saying, no, this, the things that are going to trample you are things that you see right in front of you. And there are all sorts of reasons why we don't deal with them. And the Chinese government has come out and said, all right, we're going to deal with them. We're going to take a long-term, forward-looking stance, and we're going to do something about it before they get worse. Right. How did you come up with the term gray rhino? So I was trying to come up with a way to to talk more emotionally about policy things. I, I was a financial journalist and then uh, ran a think tank for a while. So I'm very, very geeky, and I love all the details of policy, but I realized that not everybody is quite as much of a nerd. So I wanted something that was easier to relate to. And I was writing about the Argentine financial crisis mm-hmm. and the Greek financial crisis and playing with this idea of the big, obvious, scary thing coming at you. And I was talking to a friend while I was brainstorming. I said, you know, it's big. It's like like two tons. It's charging right, right at you. It's dangerous. It's, it's got like a horn. <laughs> it's a and rhino. I was like, it's a rhino. <laughs> and so then he made a, a black swan joke. He says, mm-hmm. so you, can, you can call it a black rhino. And I 
you know, maybe saw rhinos at the zoo when I was a little kid, but I didn't know anything about rhinos. Um, I can tell you stuff. You now, you now you know a lot about rhinos. You I'm just sure. don't even wait, like, way TMI about rhinos. I'm talking about rhino poop. Um, but so, so I said, but wait a minute. There, there is such a thing as a black rhino, but isn't there also a white rhino? Let me go to Wikipedia because I don't really understand. And that's when I realized that I had the perfect metaphor because black rhinos are not actually black. Mm-hmm. White rhinos are not actually white. They're actually all gray. Mm-hmm. But until now, nobody talked about the most obvious thing, which is the gray rhino. Mm-hmm. And so it was a great metaphor for this big, scary thing coming at you that you're just not seeing clearly. That no one wants to talk about. They, they don't want to talk about it. And, and I get asked a lot, well, so how is this different from the elephant in the room? Mm-hmm. And the elephant in the room is something that, by definition, nobody says anything about. And it just kind of stands there. And the gray rhino is much more dynamic. It's not just standing there. It's coming right at you. And it has a horn. And it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's scary. Although elephants, I think I've, I've looked at lists of dangerous African animals. I think actually hippos and rhinos are, uh, hippos and elephants are actually more d- dangerous than rhinos, <laughs> uh, which is kind of funny. But, but it's coming at you. And I wanted to say, hey, you have a choice. Because the elephant room normalizes the fact that we do nothing. It sort of says right. it's, it's okay. And I wanted to say, no, it's it's not a given that you're going to get trampled. It's not a given that nothing's going to happen. And the thing about the gray rhino is that many times people are talking about it, but they may not be. In fact, they're more likely not to be doing anything about Mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. So I really wanted to focus people's attention on that in an emotional way. Similarly to what the black swan did, but if you can't even imagine something, then it's pretty hard to prepare for it. And I wanted to say, look, if if you take all the energy that has gone into Black Swan, you look at how many gazillions of times that's mentioned if you do a Google search, what if we take that energy and put it towards something that we actually know about that we can think about and strategize for? Just what would that look like? And we're starting to see what it looks like in China and hopefully the rest of the world. Yeah. And so when we when we are thinking about the gray rhino to help to help listeners get their head around what that is, what are some examples of some some perhaps famous or notable ones? So the big one is the 2008 financial crisis. Mm-hmm. Everybody said nobody saw it coming. In fact, you know, Alan Greenspan for quite some time afterwards still said nobody saw it coming. But if you do a LexisNexis search of mentions, you look at there was some fantastic journalism about it. Um, I even I bought an apartment in New York City in uh, in 2000, and by 2004 it had almost doubled in price. And it was pretty obvious to me that something not quite right was going on. I actually sold that apartment and a lot of people didn't and they lost a lot of money because they bought in at the highs and you know they they didn't sell and they're they're way underwater uh, another even more uh, 30,000 foot one is climate change you know we see the the antarctic ice sheets breaking off uh, we see crazy weather weather i was in beijing in may it was 100 degrees and we see all this stuff going on there's very clear scientific evidence about why it's going on and still a significant number of people don't want to deal it with it in fact they outright deny it mm-hmm. and and what is what really strikes me about your book and what i really enjoyed about it was so much of how to think about the tactical approach once you can see that rhino and say okay this is a thing instead of just going well this is a problem. This is a thing. We should do. Someone should do something. My Somebody motto, do right, something. My motto is if you catch yourself saying, someone's got to do something about this, then that someone should be you. 
even if you can't fix the whole thing, you can do something. So that's my motto in life. And this this book is really, um, I really enjoyed the the way to think about and approach those tactical pieces of it. Very much so. And one of the things that I think is very important to recognize is it's okay to say, oh, I'm not doing a good job of dealing with mm. something. Because unless you recognize that, you're not going to get better. And so I think by saying, hey, it's human, it's normal, yeah, it's obvious, yeah, I'm not dealing with it, but I can actually do better, I have a chance to change something, it gives you a lot more power. And one of the reasons that people don't do something is that they feel they don't have a chance to change things, that mm -hmm. they don't have any power. And I think that feeling of helplessness, of lack of agency, is why the United States is where it is right now. Lots and lots and lots of people feeling, I can't do anything, the politicians aren't doing anything, let's just blow everything up, mm -hmm. because then at least something is happening, you know, the something in, in quotes. Right, there, so that there's some momentum somewhere. Something's happening. Right, indeed. The book is called The Gray Rhino, How to Recognize and Act on the Obvious Dangers We Ignore. It is by Michelle Wooker. She is here in studio with us. Thank you so much for being with us today. Everybody, go find this book. I highly, highly recommend it. All right, we're going to take a little break, come back in just a bit, and we are going to be talking with the editor of Blue Sky Innovation about a recent story about a Chicago company that perhaps, well, there's some murky stuff going on. We're going to talk about that when we come back here on 720 WGN. In 20 WGN. Hey there, it's Amy Guth here on the Wintrust Business Lunch. That was a fascinating story. <laughs> I mean, that was such an interesting guest that we just had. I can't imagine the feeling of saying, oh boy, my book has just crashed the Chinese stock market. There's a lot going on there. Indeed. So, um, esteemed producer Cash, thanks for being with us today. Glad to have you here. Um, what did you think about I mean, I think that story is so fascinating. Uh, the idea of, uh, I think that would be. A, I love it. It'd be a vulnerable feeling, right? To go, oh, yeah. okay, people around the world are writing about my book, but, but she seems like she's uh, taking it all in stride there, <laughs> for right. sure. So I, I would be like bragging everywhere, like, did, did you hear what I did? Did you hear what my book did? Like, right. Every time I just smiled, like, hey, how you doing today? I'm good. Did you hear what my book did today? Well, that's, I mean, that's that's fascinating. That could be like a really significant shift. So it'll be interesting to keep an eye on the Chinese stock market right. in the in the next week or two to see how that's playing out and how that continues. Um, um, her book is really, really good. I wasn't, I was not even kidding uh, when I said that on the air, that, that it is such a fascinating read. I read it when it, when it first came out. Um, and I and I really I took a lot of time with that book because there's so much there um, to take in and think about that you have to kind of put it down and and sort of digest your thoughts a little bit. Where normally I just I read really fast and just kind of blow through a book uh, and take it all in from there. But that was there were some kind of profound shifts I thought, particularly around the tactical things. But anyway, I digress. We are joined now by Andrea Han uh, Hannes. She is the editor of Blue Sky Innovation, and she is with us today to talk about, um, there's a recent story that Blue Sky wrote about that is really, really interesting about a Chicago-based uh, company called Nin Ventures. And they're, okay, so, so Blue Sky started to look at some things, and things were perhaps not adding up. So she joins us now to talk about that. Andrea, how are you? Welcome. Good, Amy. 
How are you? Good. Thanks for being with us today. I appreciate you taking time out of your Saturday to break it all down for us. Sure thing. So tell us about this company and what uh, what has what has transpired that led Blue Sky to to come to understand all of this stuff that's maybe happening with it. Yeah, so there are definitely still a lot of questions about what is happening here um, with Nin Ventures, which is a Chicago company, um, or at least an LLC that is registered, because at a point you start to go, is it a company? Um, so we tried to kind of peel back on that. They are raising money or attempting to raise money at least to invest. So they're kind of a combination of what we you know, would know as a venture capital firm, um, but they're using crowdfunding, which is a newer way based on some newer laws that allows other kinds of people to get a piece of the action and invest. Okay. And so are they doing that through one of the platforms like Kickstarter, Indiegogo, things like that, or are they doing it another route? Yeah, so they're using crowdfunder.com. Um, they're not, like, product-based. It's, like, they're specific investor sites. Um, so it's not the Kickstarter-type ones, but it would be similar. So what's happening with them is they attempted briefly to raise money on a site. They've gotten, over time, a lot of media attention for some different things they've done. Um and what kind of caused it, you know, there are people that start things, they may or may not take off, they may or may not become big enough to get much attention, you know, it, it happens. Sure. But in this case, um, they announced last fall that they were appointing an advisor who was kind of a Silicon Valley known person who had a history of domestic violence. So this brought a lot of attention to the company and people started asking questions about it. It was a little bit strange, I would say, because they made a big to-do about it. You know, they were seeking press. They were getting a lot of press about having added this uh, guy as an advisor. Fast forward a few months, passed all this coverage of it, which was heavy, kind of really international, literally global coverage of this person because of his history of domestic violence, getting this gig as an advisor, supposedly, with an inventors. He, in the spring, denies it. And there's kind of getting into arguments with reporters about it. So here you have the situation where he's now saying, I didn't even do that. I wasn't even involved with this company. So then people started taking a closer look. So he, he, he was at no point involved with it, or he was just saying, I'm no longer involved, or is that unclear? Yeah, so he says he was never involved and has asked her to stop saying that he was. So that was a whole Sure, that's a pretty bold move to say someone's involved in a leadership role in your company who is not. That's a bold move. It is, and not to say never, but but you know, you always think if someone's doing something like that, are they at the same time loudly seeking publicity? Like that's, Mm -hmm. you know, if if you're doing something that maybe isn't right, are you loudly seeking publicity for it? Maybe not. So now we have another person that was listed as an advisor who has, you know, come forward basically now that this attention has been happening in recent months and saying, I'm not an advisor either. Like, I didn't really challenge her on saying I was until now, but I'm totally not. And he provided us with a copy of the cease and desist letter that he says he sent her. Again, saying, I never had anything to do with them. I maybe met her, but I am not, you know, employed by her firm or in any way advising them. And so what would the motivation be here if, if, if all this, if, if what the, the evidence is pointing to, uh, if all this is true, is, is the motivation likely PR or, or is this something more sinister? You know, 
it's hard to say, and I'm not sure I would want to guess. Yeah. I think based on what we know now, it does seem like there was, you know, I think some perhaps resume inflating um, mm-hmm. going on in, in other ways. There was, you know, there's, and this kind of stuff, it's like, you know, it's hard to parse. Yeah. Um, but she did like a brief executive education course at Harvard with which they've confirmed that she did. Um, but you know, others have reported that she was claiming sort of a bigger role that she was like leading a Chicago sort of alumni type organization, which they say doesn't exist. So there's things as you pull at them that, you know, start to make this a little more unclear what's happening. Yeah. So what is the, oh, sorry, go ahead, go ahead. She has spoken briefly to people, and she's, you know, I have to say she's in a way aggressively defended herself with, in the sense that she's gone to Twitter. She's kind of fought with reporters from Axios and Fortune, which have both done great reporting on this. Um, so in that way, she's kind of loudly defended herself, but I don't know that she's actually provided what we'd like to see, which is some documents, something to show evidence that she has raised money or that she's invested money. Or, again, if, if her idea for a company didn't pan out, maybe that's okay. But I think at this point, there's some big questions about how she's presenting it. And when you're seeking to raise money, you know, if there are issues, that can become a problem, right? It isn't just that maybe you're inflating a resume. It gets a little, you know, the questions get bigger. Right, right. And the stakes get much higher uh, as, as those questions need answers, indeed. Um, and so what's kind of the next step here and what, what do we expect to see in the, or are we just kind of waiting to see if, if some documents can be provided? Yeah, so I think reporters are definitely continuing to pursue this. So somebody will get some more on it, I expect. Um, you have both national and local media looking at it now. Um, she has, again, she's answered the phone. She hasn't necessarily answered all the questions everyone wants answered. Um, she's scheduled to make some public appearances in the coming weeks. She's offered to talk to people in August. So, you know, we need to dig in. I mean, the, the interesting thing about private companies is you don't have as much, you know, there aren't requirements of reporting things and some of the things that we we expect from public companies. So reporters are on it and, you know, it's going to be interesting to see what else comes out of it or if she's able to come forward and explain her case or what comes next. Right, right. Well, very, very interesting stuff. And, of course, we will keep turning to Blue Sky Innovation for the latest. Andrea Hannes, thanks so much for being with us today and breaking it all down. We'll keep looking for the latest. Thanks, Amy. Thanks so much.